for much of human history, people have agreed business deals uh, through a simple handshake. That's what you had to do. Shake your hands over it, right? If someone gave you their word, you trusted them. In fact, the original motto of the London Stock Exchange is, my word is what? My bond. Today, you cannot even get a bank account by simply shaking your hands over it. You must sign a legally binding contract. And of course, the reason for that is obvious. Uh, We have written contracts because all of us find it difficult to trust anyone. And sadly, for most human beings, anyone includes God our Creator. We are currently going through Luke. The book of Luke is one of the four historical accounts in the Bible of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our first message in Luke, we learned that Dr. Luke wrote this record for a man named Theophilus. And he wrote to Theophilus so that Theophilus, Theophilus, or Theo, we might call him, can grow in trusting the truth of Jesus. Dr. Luke wants Brother Theo to grow in relying on the truth that Jesus is God the Son coming to reign as King over all things as God had promised in the Old Testament. And so as we're going through Luke right from the get-go, Luke is very keen to show us that in a faithless world, in a world where we can't shake our hands over a business contract, right, we can actually truly trust the faithful promises of God concerning his son. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything God has said concerning his son is true and shall come to pass. This evening we have come to another event in Luke that, if you like, shouts out loud uh, this truth. The birth of baby John. So please look with me there at Luke chapter 1, verse 56. We look at verse 57 to verse uh, 66. We just walk through that. Uh, hopefully you have an outline to help you follow along. Uh, Brother Chidi would have given you one. Now, just before these verses, we have seen God send his angel, Gabriel, to promise old Zechariah that against all odds, he's going to be a dad in old age. It's an amazing promise. Zechariah is advanced in years. I would say in the late 70s, 80s. Zechariah is going to have a baby son. And not just any son. This child will be a great prophet. Who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. But to our shock, as we've been following these events, old Zechariah has not welcomed this sensational grace of God to him. He has been second-guessing it. He has doubted it. And so what has God done? God has taken away from Zechariah his speech and his hearing. Keep quiet. You won't hear anything. Just deal with this. Deal with your disobedience before me. But because God is full of mercy to his sinful and suffering people, he has promised old Zechariah that he'll be back to normal. When baby John is born. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 57 to 66. The big moment we have been waiting for ever since angel Gabriel uh, spoke to Zechariah in the temple. Has now come. 
Baby John is about to cry and Zechariah is about to speak as God promised. So that's the context. And that context reminds us that this event, as we look at it now, of the birth of John the Baptist, has been recorded here to show that what God said has come to pass. God has kept his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, it's a good habit to summarize the truth of the passage in one sentence. I was encouraging a few men earlier this week. That's, that's a very good thing for us to do, right? And I've done the same here. We can summarize this passage, what this passage is teaching us. Verse 57 to 66 is simply this. We can trust God to keep his word to show mercy to his people. What is Luke teaching us here? He's teaching us that we can trust God to keep his word to show mercy to his people. Luke wants us to trust the faithful mercy of God. That's the focus and the central force of this passage. Now, I want us to answer this call from Dr. Luke to trust the faithful mercy of God by learning two truths which are in your outline about the faithful mercy of God. Two truths. Truth number one. God has faithful mercy to his suffering people. God has faithful mercy to his suffering people. Let's dive into the passage to look at that first truth. Dr. Luke starts this passage by announcing that the time has arrived for Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, to give birth to the baby promised by God. Look at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. She bore a son. Let's just pause there. Let's take that in. Let us acknowledge Right away, beloved, with excitement, I would say, that our God has kept his word. Elizabeth has not just given birth, notice, she has given birth to a son, as the angel promised. God has determined not only that the baby should be born, but the the gender of the the baby. The one true God is faithful. He does what he promises. And every page of the Bible shouts out this exciting truth. That God is faithful. For example, Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 says this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Amen. The Lord your God is God. Yahweh, your God, is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. And keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 36, verse 5, one of my favorite verses, he says this. Your steadfast love, O Lord, O Yahweh, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Now, I don't know how you feel as you hear what I've just said. Maybe you're like, okay, I know that. But the faithfulness of God, beloved, is not a small thing. People promise us to do things, but in the end, they let us down. And it's not just politicians. It's not just politicians who break promises. All of us do. And some of you sat here, you've been at the end of really painful breaking promises. You know this so well. 
And think of yourself. You are not just been at the end of promises which haven't been kept. You yourself don't do very well in keeping your promise. How many times have you taught someone, I'll remember you in prayer? <laughs> I, I mean, think about that. I'll remember you in prayer. I mean, what a serious thing to promise before God, and then you don't do it. You just don't do it. How many times have you promised to be at a place on time, and you turn up many minutes late? We are not faithful, friends. We are not faithful people. None of us are. Not like God anyway. But thank God, God is not like us. God keeps his word to us, doesn't he? And, and not only because God is faithful and true, but also he keeps his word because he's the all-powerful God. I mean, that's a key aspect. You need power to keep your promises. No one in this world can guarantee they will absolutely keep their promise under any circumstances because we don't control anything. We can only promise and hope to do our best. But God is able to keep his promise because he does not have to depend on anyone for help. When he made this promise to Zechariah that you're going to have a baby son, he was going to bring it about. He determines life. And so here we are seeing this example, isn't it, of God's faithfulness as he keeps his word to, this, to give this elderly couple, Mr. and Mrs. Zechariah, a bouncing baby boy, we might say. Now, the good news, though, the good news always travels fast, isn't it? So it's not a surprise that as soon as baby John arrives, the house is heaving with many visitors. They are eager to hold the baby, right, and take those selfies with the baby, as it were. And no doubt, Zechariah has gone viral within the priesthood, doesn't it? Would you believe it? Old mute Zechariah. You know who was at the temple. Now, have you heard? Now, has a baby. One minute struck down, next minute he's like a father in his 80s. I must see this for myself. It can't be true. And so we can imagine they've come. And they have come, says Dr. Luke in verse 58. And our neighbors and relatives said that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. That is Elizabeth. And they rejoiced with her. We can see, we can imagine them holding the new baby this way and that way and passing, them around, passing him around as people do with babies. And as they do, says Dr. Luke, they are thanking God. They are rejoicing with her. They can see that God has shown mercy to this woman. He has done something special for Elizabeth. And the word that Luke summarizes out what they're saying is that the relatives heard that the Lord had shown her not little mercy, but great mercy to her. What is the mercy of God? Well, the mercy of God is the deep compassion that God has for those in a terrible state. And it's not just the, the, the compassion he has, but it is a powerful exertion of action, of really doing something about it. The mercy of God is not abstract. It's, it's active. He, he, he works to change the situation in that moment of sin or suffering as we're seeing in this case. Because this is what the Lord has done for Elizabeth. God has been moved by the plight of Elizabeth. You must, you must not forget that Elizabeth, you must not forget what we read in verse 25, that Elizabeth has been weighed down by the baroness. Because the moment she got the news and she says, that's the Lord has done for me has taken away the reproach from among the people. She has been weighed down. 
by it. They think she sinned. That's why she couldn't have children. They have got the theology wrong. Completely wrong. But nevertheless, even the wrong things people think about it cuts to the heart. And she has been weighed down by it. And so God has shown her mercy now by giving her this baby boy. And we must remember that this mercy of God is magnified here, isn't it? This mercy of God to Elizabeth is magnified when we remember that this is a self-delivery. I mean, we take that for granted, of course, living in society now, but Elizabeth is in her 80s, first of all. That's a dangerous pregnancy, we might say, right? Given her age. But she's given birth without complications, right? And Dr. Luke, as I said, was so precise, describes Elizabeth actually as advanced in years. That gives us a sense of how old she is. Why? Because the same phrase Luke uses, he will use later when he describes the prophetess Anna, who is in her 80s. So Luke has that sense of giving us a sense of the age range, really, without precision. She's that old. Oh, beloved, how compassionate is God to give Elizabeth strength to give birth in her old age. And during a time without our AI-assisted medical care, and the mercy of God, the mercy of God, is especially so great, beloved, as you think about this event, because it's not simply about the care for Eliza in this case. The care she's received. But it's also about her not getting from God what she deserves. Because that's mercy, isn't it? Mercy is us not getting from God what we deserve. Grace is getting from God what we don't deserve. But mercy is us not getting from God what we deserve, right? And that's vital that mercy is the right word here. Why? Because for, our God, for all our godliness, Elizabeth is a sinner just like all of us. She deserves our affliction. She deserves our pain in life. Do you know that all of us deserve to suffer pain in this life? This is the plight of every soul on earth. And I touched on that this morning. Suffering is the bed that Adam and Eve made for the human race when they sinned against God. All suffering, you see, is a terrible fruit of original sin, as I reminded us this morning. And so this is mercy from God, isn't it? The mercy of God to Elizabeth is great because God is letting her off from the suffering she deserves. She deserves to be barren because of original sin. I deserve to be sick. Everybody does. Deserves all the suffering goes through. But God has let her off from that, right? And and not only let her off, he's lavishing his deep care and compassion on her. It's like being let out of jail and then being put in a mansion. That's essentially what God is doing here. And notice, most importantly for our purposes, God is not just being merciful. He is being faithful in his mercy. He is fulfilling his promise to show mercy. That's an important nuance to the passage. He isn't just showing mercy. He is showing the mercy he has promised. So we are calling this faithful mercy. Right? That's what God is doing. The true God of the Bible has faithful mercy to his suffering people. That's what Luke wants us to understand. All who truly belong to God, who have repented and trusted in Jesus, can depend on God to care for them. Just as Elizabeth, who's trusting in God, has found this faithful mercy in God. And you know, Luke reminds us, didn't he, this morning in the Magnificat, that this God is now with us in Jesus. 
Jesus is the faithful mercy of God dressed in our human flesh. Oh, beloved, I can't wait for us to meet Jesus in the passages of Luke. Because as we go through Luke, we'll see plenty of evidence of the amazing faithfulness of God the Son, Jesus. His faithful mercy to suffering, to his suffering people. We'll see Jesus keep his word to heal the sick and raise the dead. Oh, and we especially see his faithful mercy to suffer us on the cross. On the cross, God the Son suffered as one of us and, and with us and for us. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross unleashed a torrent of God's mercy, of God's faithful mercy to all who truly trust in him. You know, all who trust in Jesus. Do you trust in Jesus this evening? If you trust in Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, you have your sins forgiven and you have a new life with God in which Jesus is now your faithful and merciful king. Are you going through suffering at this moment? Well, if you're a true follower of Jesus, the God of Elizabeth is your God in Jesus. God has faithful mercy towards you, his child. So trust him this evening. Trust him to be with you to provide all the help you need in your present struggle, in your present moment of suffering, whatever that struggle is. Now, the faithful mercy of God to his suffering people does not mean that he takes away all our suffering in this life. We talked about that this morning. God has never promised that. He's never promised that. You see, there will be a time when God will make all things new, when death will be fully removed, when suffering will be swallowed up, right? That will be when Christ descends in glory. In the here and now, he has never promised us to remove that. Instead, what he has promised is that he will never leave us, nor forsake us. He has made clear that we shall never walk alone. He has made it clear that our life is now bound up with ease. That's Jesus. We are joined with him now at the spiritual hip, we might say. He lives in us. We live in him if we are true believers. And so, if, and the implication of this is quite profound. Because if Jesus is allowing you to suffer in some area, it is not because he's being merciless or faithless. No, quite the opposite. When we suffer, we are suffering under his watch. And we are suffering, actually, because everything goes... You see, I think I've said this before. God's worldview is what? Grace. And we might say mercy. That means the fundamental way God relates to us is through grace, through mercy, right? So if God is allowing me, Chola, to go through some suffering, and I need to remember this, right? If God is allowing me, Chola, to go through some suffering... It is because, it's not because of the absence of his grace. It's because he's been full of great mercy towards me. He knows that's exactly what I need at this moment. And so, the response then is what? Well, the response is he's joined me with, the, with my theme for the year. Courtesy of Brother Frederick. Philippians 2, I think, verse 14. Do nothing... <laughs> Without grumbling or complaining. That's my theme for, for, this, for, this, for this anniversary year, right? My seven, for my eighth year as a pastor here, do nothing 
without grumbling or complaining. Why? Because everything that God does towards me is full of great mercy. And we need to take that on board. All things works for his glory and for your good. So whatever you're experiencing, do not be discouraged. Do not despair. Keep on trusting the faithful mercy to his suffering people. So that's the first thing we learn in this passage. God has faithful mercy to his suffering people. The second thing that uh, Luke wants to teach us here is that God has faithful mercy to his sinful people. To his sinful people. Let's rejoin Dr. Luke uh, in the narrative. So the people have come and rejoiced with Elizabeth for God's gift of baby John. And I think... If it was in our British culture, that would be it, right? <laughs> that would be it. The baby's born. Okay, leave us alone now uh, to enjoy as it was. It's, it's our time now. Uh, you've come. Thank you. We fed you. Well done. Now we can enjoy, can get on the hard task of having sleepless nights on our own, right? Uh, especially during winter. But not in ancient Israel, you see. Uh, they're just getting started, right? Now actually comes, the baby has been born, but on day eight comes the high point. Look at verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. You see, God, let's just pause there. God in the Old Testament commanded that every Jewish male child must be circumcised as a sign that the child was now part of the covenant people of God, Israel. That's a significant. Now, this custom of circumcision was doubled up Right? Or doubled up as a baby naming ceremony. In some cultures, you have that, right? Some of you, where you come from, they have that sort of baby naming ceremony as a, as a, as a big thing, uh, parties, etc., etc. Well, here it's doubled up, right? So you've got the circumcision and the baby naming ceremony wrapped up into one. So on day eight, the family and friends are now back in town, right? And, and just reading through this narrative, you keep reading it, you, you just read all over it, you get the sense that. They, they, they have come and they are taking charge. <laughs> uh, it so happens. I, I met perhaps these people from Zechariah. It's sort of the uncles, brothers of Zechariah. I, I can't speculate on that. Or perhaps there's some old aunties who live in Galilee and they have showed up in town. Well, somebody is in charge, right? Luke says, that after the baby is circumcised, this, 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 the people make their voices heard. Let's read on verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they, notice, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. The family and friends have named the child Zechariah without consulting the mother. Now, don't panic, don't panic, ladies. Eliza is not being oppressed here. She's not being oppressed. In fact, quite the opposite. In fact, they are honoring her, really. Because in Elizabeth's culture, it is an honor for these groups to show up, to care for the child, and to to love the child so much that they want to name him as a high point of joy for the the town, for for the area they live in. And I say that because they are behaving like another incident in the Bible. Do you remember when Ruth had a child? What happened? When Ruth had a child, the women of, in the neighborhood came to Naomi's house and they, it is them that named Ruth's son. Remarkably, it's them that named him Obed. 
And notice, so in the same way, they are not coming to oppress Eliza here. They're, they're, they're actually honoring. They are involved, right? And notice they are not being selfish, but protective. They have decided to name the baby Zechariah, not Judas. Zechariah, right? A wonderful name. In the honor of his silent father as the custom. That's what they've called him. But there is a problem. We know something they don't know. Right? Because we are reading the passage, right? If you hear this, we know something they don't know, right? Because we know about the angel visiting. We know what God has said, right? Because it's in front of us, right? This baby already has a name. We know that. They don't know. They, 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 are probably, they have been told by Elizabeth, as we'll see in a moment. But they haven't appreciated the gravity of it. God has shared this name of John with the silent Zechariah. The problem is Zechariah can't speak, right? And he can't hear. He hasn't even heard that the child is being called after him, right? He has been struck deaf and dumb by the angel. So we have a potential disaster here in the making. So it is now down to poor Elizabeth to stand up to this large group of people who seem nice and well-meaning, but have deep cultural convictions. Look at that. Let's see how Elizabeth responds in verse 60. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. Elizabeth has refused. In fact, it is much stronger than that in the original Greek. In the original Greek, really, our translation don't quite capture the force of, of what's happening here. She is actually really arguing back to them. And, and, and with, with some strong force. She's passionate about this. The lady is not for turning, right? And now, but the problem is the family and friends are refusing also to budge. Look at verse 61. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. How do you read that? Now, on the surface, it just looks like they are... <clears throat> They are back to tradition cult. Yeah? They just, they, it sounds like they're just saying, don't break with our tradition. We don't like that sort of thing around here. What are you doing, right? But it's more than that. It's more than that. It is a strong tradition that the first son be named after his father. So if the mother rejects this, it raises issues of faithfulness. So we can now imagine the tension in the room. I can imagine relatives raising eyebrows. Eliza, okay. Is Zechariah the father or not? Okay? Is he? Well, if he is, then let's move on. The baby is Zechariah. That's what. That's how it's done. Now, again, the real problem is, of course, is that the people have totally misunderstood the nature of John's birth. They have accepted that God has blessed Elizabeth, but they don't think that John is special. To them, he's just like any firstborn son. And so with that in mind, what do they do? They give him the name of his unbelieving father. He's just like us. It's quite ironic, really. He's just like us in our unbelief. So let's name him Zechariah, right? They believe baby John will be truly blessed, right? If he grows up to be like his dad, they have not grasped that this baby is greater before God than his dad. But hey, we must not be too harsh on them, right? We would be doing the same thing if we were in their shoes. All of us here were 
cultural and traditional goggles. We are prone to follow traditions without actively seeking God to guide us. We do that as individuals. We do that as churches. Indeed, even when something doesn't quite feel right, we don't always seek to wait on God. We're driven more by tradition and culture. So let's speak, let's speak compassionate as we reflect on that. So let's go back. The people are not happy with Eliza, right? So they quickly turn to a deaf and mute husband to intervene. Uh, they make signs to, to him to step in. In, in, in. They need to make signs. They can't just speak to him because, as I said, he can't speak and he can't hear. That's the point. The original word for, for dumb, for mute, originally actually in the original language implies, can imply both things. Uh, and so it's quite right, therefore, as we read this, we understand that he's deaf and mute. So they make signs to him. Let's read on verse 62. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So the people want old Zechariah to settle the argument. And of course, he quickly grabs his writing tablet, we imagine. And I'm imagining him furiously scrolling John on it. Look at verse 64. And he asked for a writing tablet. Uh, the original language of writing tablet there, really, Luke, again, is a doctor. This is a further evidence of just the authenticity of Luke. Because actually, in the original language, uh, he, Luke uses a medical term for a prescription tablet. And he asked for a writing tablet, he says, and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. So Elizabeth has won the argument. Zechariah has written the name John, and this name is significant. What does John mean? What does John mean? John means what? Yahweh is gracious, or Yahweh is merciful. I'll leave you the homework to figure out what Zechariah means. It's a good thing. I'll let you look that up, right? God, in the name of John, God is reminding them that God has graciously sent John to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring unfailing mercy to the sinful people of Israel. And notice that this, this, this mercy to the sinful is underlined by what happens next to the deaf and mute Zechariah. Let's read on verse 64. And immediately his mouth, that is Zechariah, was opened, and his tongue loosened. And he spoke, blessing God. Zechariah's nine or ten month exile has ended, right? God promised to the angel Gabriel that the unbelieving Zechariah will be able to speak again after the birth of John. God has kept his promise. He is the God who keeps his promises. So Dr. Luke, that's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us that God keeps his promise to show mercy to his covenant people even when his covenant people have sinned against him as Zechariah has done. And notice that this faithful mercy of God to his sinful people is actually larger than Zechariah, right? Have you noticed here, I mean, when I first read this passage, you should always note down when you read the passage, I'll speak to the men again about this, uh, when you read the passage, you should note down things that, are, that, that strike you the first time. Have you noticed how many times in verse 57 to 66, they mention the family and neighbors? The passage is really about them. I counted 11 references to them in one way or the other. And did you notice that one of the main things Luke is drawing our attention to is how the attitude of the neighbors changed 
It's an up and down, right? They start off rejoicing at God's mercy for John. But then they oppose God's choice of the name. But finally, they are believing God is at work. Notice that change. All centered around John. Look at this. 65 to 66, just to underline that. And fear came on all their neighbors. Again, reference to them. And all these things were talked about through all the ill country of Judea. And all who heard them led them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We might say today that baby John has become a toddler celebrity, right? He's gone viral, right? If it was today's photo and story would be now on the Hill Country community Facebook page and with endless comments about him. And these are not just casual discussion of baby John. Dr. Luke says these people have laid them up in their hearts. In other words, they are being changed by the events they have witnessed. Now, we are in Luke, right? We are reading this story with verse 1 to 4 in mind of why Dr. Luke has written this gospel to, uh, to, to Theophilus. But we've also seen why John has been sent by God by the angelic appearance uh, of Gabriel to Zechariah where his mission statement is chosen. So the question we have to ask is, why is Dr. Luke telling us all of these things about the reaction of the people? Why has he centered the narrative around them? Well, the answer is this, that the angel has already told us in verse 14 to 17. John is God's mercy to what? A disobedient and rebellious people. He has come to turn their hearts to God so that they can be ready for the work of God through his chosen Messiah, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Luke is doing here is that he's showing us that God... (laughs) Oh, man. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. What Luke is showing us is that God in his faithful mercy, beloved, listen to me, God in his faithful mercy has already started using John even as a baby to change their hearts. How amazing is God? Oh, what faithfulness of God. And so Luke is saying, look, God has faithful mercy to his sinful people. He's already working through John. He never gives up on them. No matter how rebellious his people get, God always has bowels of mercy for them. And you know, beloved, we know the faithful mercy of God to sinners because God has kept his promise to us by sending his son, even our Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. All those 700 years plus, back to Eden, Genesis 3, all those promises of the son of Eve coming to crush the serpent. God kept his promise. And I said we start in Genesis, but we are reformed people, aren't we? So we start before time. We start off with the covenant between the son, the eternal covenant between the son and the father. Christ came. He purchased the elect for himself. He kept that promise, that eternal covenant. Now, if Christ has kept such a promise to go to the cross, to willingly bleed and die, to save you, if we can start from the great, what about the lesser? What about the daily struggles of sins we have? The, mis- the, the many where we sin against you? If God has done that great thing for me, 
Surely you remain faithful to me when I let him down on a daily basis. Our life in God does not depend on us, beloved. It depends on the faithful mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, Jesus is so committed to you, so, such that he shed his blood for your sins. And he didn't give half of himself in death, but all of himself. You should always remember that the faithful message of Jesus to you, uh, for, for, for that daily commitment he has to you, is written in a contract of his own blood. He gave himself up for you. And he's committed to keeping you. No matter how much you sin against him. You know, he did not give himself for you ignorantly. Amazingly. He went to that cross knowing the many times you would fail him every day. When Jesus allowed himself to bear the wrath and judgment of God in you. That despite, that, that, even given all that he has done. Oh, he lived in the glories of heaven and purchased him. That you will still be lazy to read your Bible. You still not appreciate prayer. You still not value the gathering of the saints. You still not evangelize as you should. You still not love your wife as you should. He knew that. And yet he still came. He still purchased you. And more than that, he's still in your life. He's still saying, the Holy Spirit is still working to transform you from one degree of glory to next. And he's done that because he loves you and he's committed to you. And he's purchased you at such great cost. He will never deny you. He will always remain faithful to you. No matter how much, listen to me, no matter how much you let him down, no matter how much you sin against Jesus, there's no sin you can commit against Jesus that can change his mind about you. His faithful mercy is bigger than your sin. He won't abandon you. Now, if you are a true follower of Jesus, you hear me say that. And I can say that knowing full well that if you are truly converted, the faithful mercy of God to you cannot lead you to love sin more because you've heard me say that. It's not a license to sin. How can we sin against such tenderness? How can we love sin in face of such, a, such great mercy we've been shown? Most importantly, if we are finding ourselves after hearing that loving sin, then let's remember the words of Richard Sibbs, the Puritan. Grace will, not, will never join with sin any more than fire with water. Therefore, those who plead and plot for liberties for the flesh show themselves strangers from the life of God. You see, the faithful mercy of God for sinners is for born again sinners. People who have received new hearts to follow Jesus. Even as we stumble on the waves like Peter. So this passage is not yet to encourage Theophilus to sin. Quite the opposite, to grow his trust in Jesus, to, to help him grow in trust in the faithful mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's the point. So how are we meant to do this in practice? So that's the goal, right? 
The, the goal is to help Theophilus and us to grow in trusting the faithful mercy of God in Jesus. So how do we do that in practice? How do we grow in trusting God's faithful mercy? Well, the simple answer is this, very simple, and it's in your outline. It's by following the example of Elizabeth and Zechariah. We must learn from them to use every moment in our lives, every moment, as an opportunity from God to grow deeper in depending on his faithful mercy. That's what we should do. We should use every moment in our lives as an opportunity to grow in trusting God. And let me just give you three ways in which they've done that here, which we can learn from. First, learn from Eliza, right? Learn from Eliza to see blessings from God. Blessings, have you heard me? Blessings from God, right? I'm not talking about suffering now. Learn to see blessings from God as an opportunity to grow in trusting God more for fulfillment of his greater promises in your life. Oh, friends, some of you have been so blessed, but I've already seen you taking a standing still, like I was saying this morning. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't use your blessing as an opportunity to stand still. Press in for more obedience to God. That's why Eliza has done. Are you not surprised, ladies especially here, that after receiving such a gift of a son, she doesn't just say, ah, this is enough. I've always waited for this. This is great. Oh, you can call him Zechariah. It doesn't matter. I have a boy. I've always wanted a boy, she might even say. Right? That's it. What's this business now of arguing my relative? It's too much, too much. Call him Zechariah if you want. I want a simple life. Right? That's not Elizabeth. As I said, the Greek is emphatic. No. No. This is the hill I'm going to die on. Elizabeth is encouraged to trust God more by the blessings he's received. She's encouraged to press on. She's not saying that's enough for me. Let's just call it quits. Let's just call him Zechariah. No. She knows God has bigger plans for her, for her family, and especially for his son. And she wants them. She's not content to just stand still. Oh, beloved, let us pray for God to give us what I call holy dissatisfaction. Let us ask God to give us that holy dissatisfaction that allows us to pursue the bigger promises of God for our Christian lives. Let us grow. Let us press on, as Isaiah says. Let us press on to know the Lord. Use the current... As God... Is this a moment of blessing for you at the moment? Oh, beloved, praise the Lord for that. Use that now as an opportunity to even trust God to now use, help you, for example, to live ever more sacrificial. As the Lord bless you financially. How about give away now half of your income because you can live on the other half. Trust him to do more through your life. So learn from Eliza to see God's blessing, to see blessings from God as opportunity to grow in trusting God for more. Secondly, learn from Eliza to use opposition from others, not as a thing to feel sorry for yourself, but as a new opportunity to stand firm for God. And there I say for some of us, 
especially opposition from family members. <laughs> right? Because that's the context here, right? If I was speaking to the ladies, I'd say, yeah, it's just learn from Eliza here. Do you see that opposition you're facing in your family, perhaps from an extended family? Another opportunity to wear you down. Opposition from family members can wear us down. It really can. But if you are facing difficulty in your family and some sort of opposition in some way, oh, beloved, this is, I believe, this is an example, I think, that the Lord has just providentially brought about. Stand firm for Christ in that position. Do it lovingly. And then use the opportunity to grow, to, 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 be, to, to minister faithfully for Christ in that position. Are you facing a hard time at work? Well, it may not like, feel like it, but God has allowed it like he did for Eliza at home. It was an opportunity for you to grow in your faithfulness to our faithful God. So, opposition gifts from God for us to grow in this area. Finally, learn from Zechariah, and I'll finish. Learn from Zechariah to grow in trusting God as he takes us through any painful corrective discipline for our sin. Use the correction that God is allowing in your life to grow you. You know, I'll leave you with this. It is significant that though the angel Gabriel had promised Zechariah that he would regain his speech, when did it happen? When did it happen? It didn't happen immediately when John was born. It happened eight days later. And what was the significant moment at which, at which it occurred? The moment good old Zechariah wrote down the name John. He sinned in public, now he repented in public. He wrote the name John, he obeyed God in public. It is in that moment that Zechariah finally trusted the promises of God that he regained his speech. And so what we see now is that Zechariah grew in faith, you see, whilst he was mute and deaf. That's the point I'm getting to, right? Zechariah could have become bitter. I can see how he could have become bitter by what God had done to him. He could have claimed God was oppressing him against his will. But he hasn't. His heart has become broken. And he's been molded by God. And he's now growing in trusting the word of God. And we must do the same. Are you under some suffering that you believe God may be using as a sort of discipline perhaps only you know that it's difficult i think it's a very difficult area it's not always easy to know we are being disciplined for some sin in our lives and we should be careful not to especially judge that of others but sometimes we do god makes that very clear and i think in those cases it can be easy to despair we think that correction like that should immediately drive us to trust god more but sometimes we can start losing trust in God because we feel he is being too harsh on correcting us. Well, the example of Zechariah here is reminding us, isn't it? Not to despair. And maybe it's not discipline. Maybe it's just suffering in general. Whatever it is that God has allowed, you must use that situation to move you to pray, to read his word, to, to worship more with his people, to use all the means of grace. God wants his children to trust in his faithfulness so let us give ourselves to grow in trusting him by reading and believing his promises to us. So two truths there that Zechariah has been teaching us. The central truth is that this episode is designed to get Theophilus and us to trust God to keep his word to show us mercy. Right? Keep trusting God to 
keep his word, his promise to show us mercy. And we've seen that God has faithful mercy to his suffering people and God has faithful mercy to his sinful people. So let us then grow. Let us grow in trusting in him. Amen.